Colossians 3, 9. Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge, renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. There's so much here in these texts, uh, these two verses here. Uh, We're going to try and dig into that. Welcome back to Bible time. We were studying yesterday um, about the new man, the old man and the new man, but we studied particularly the operation of the new birth and how God births a new man. Until God births the new man, there cannot be a new man. I'd encourage you to get that lesson if you missed it. Um, The old man and the new man, the study of the old man and the new man is extremely important to your Christian growth. Until you understand this concept, you will not move very far forward with the Lord. You will, you can definitely grow, but the what lacking this understanding brings you into a lot of, allows the devil to cast a lot of doubt in your life and makes you um, susceptible to a lot of attacks from the devil that under, what when you understand this concept from the word of God, it gives you so much peace and rest in what God is doing. And conversely, if you, um, to the peace and rest of God, the other side of not understanding the old man and the new man is that if If you allow the world to teach you the doctrine of the old man and the new man, the contemporary movement has their own doctrine of the old man and new man. And if you let them teach you this doctrine instead of God, and instead of going to the word of God, you'll end up with a neo-Gnosticism. That sounds fancy, but it's not. And we may look at that a little bit more in a little while. That's what we've got going on in our modern churches today Um, with the old man, new man. It's pretty amazing um, twist that the devil has put on this doctrine that is leading many people to hell and destroying many, shipwrecking many lives of many Christians. So we looked at how this you have a, a flesh, you have a soul, and you have a spirit. You are born with a dead spirit. We are dead in trespasses and sins. Your spirit that you're born with is it's in a it's in a way dead. Now, dead to God is not what dead is to man. When man says dead, there's something about death that that separates people from all known reality. So whenever we say death, we 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 say it like it's like it's gone and untouchable, and there's nothing that can be done for it or to it. Jesus Jesus walked into a room where there was a dead girl and they all were weeping and howling and crying. And he said, the maid is not dead, but sleepeth. And they all laughed him to scorn. And he put them out of the room, had them all put out of the room and only let a couple people in there with him. And he said to the little maid, Talitha Kumi, which is being interpreted, um, maid arise. (coughs) Something to that effect. And when he said that to her, she arose from the dead. Jesus can interact with the dead. God can interact with the dead. You and I cannot. When someone is dead, they are past our ability to interact with. And we think of dead then as ceasing to exist. And it's just ingrained in our in our minds that when someone dies because they're so separated from us that they cease to exist. 
But the reality is that they will never cease to exist. The soul of man is eternal. And because Jesus died on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for our sins and was buried and rose again the third day, not only the soul, but the body, soul, and spirit of every person that ever lived and ever will live is now eternal because of what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus defeated death and the grave. And the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ himself um, taught and the Bible, which he wrote the whole Bible, don't let anybody tell you anything different, but Jesus taught that there would be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. Everyone that ever lived will be raised from the dead. God's definition of death is not a ceasing to exist. God's definition of death is being cast into the lake of fire following the resurrection of the unjust, where they will be damned to an eternity in the lake of fire, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And Jesus was very plain about this. The word of God is very plain about this, that death in God's economy, in God's system, that death is not a cease, ceasing to exist. Death is merely a separation, a cutting off from everything good and everything godly and everything peaceful and everything restful. And it is a entering into eternal torment in hell fire. Now, we say that to, why do we say that? Because whenever I say that you are born with a dead spirit, I'm not saying that your spirit did not exist but rather that it was cut off and it was not able to interact with God. It had no ability to commune with God. And so instead your spirit was open to communion with false spirits, with the devil. And there needed to be a regeneration, a new birth. We studied that out in detail in yesterday's lesson um, on the old man and the new man in this text, Colossians 3, 9 and 10. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So this old man and new man is a reversing of the situation. Whenever you're born with a dead spirit, your spirit is cut off from God. It still exists, but it is cut off from God. It is cut off from communion with God. When a man is born again, he his old nature is cut off and he, he, he is given a new nature. All things are become new. Old things are passed away and behold, all things are become new. And that new nature now has communion with God, whereas it did not have communion in time past. This is salvation. Praying a prayer is not salvation. Getting dunked is not salvation. A new creature in Christ is salvation. Nothing short of a new creature in Christ is salvation. And that new creature now has communion with God. That new creature has communion through the word of God. Many people that I deal with will tell me that they have communion with God, that they can speak to God, that God speaks to them. But yet the things that they tell me that God tells them fly in the face of what God says in his word. Are they really communing with God? I've got two that say no. How many of you think that if someone says that they're speaking to God, but what their God says to them contradicts what the Bible says, are they really speaking to God or are they speaking to a false spirit? They're speaking to a false spirit. And this is the litmus test. This and a litmus test is a irrefutable test. It is something that cannot be denied, something that is 
something that is the baseline test to prove uh, a reality, a fact. And the litmus test of your relationship with God is your obedience to the word of God. If you are disobedient to the word of God, you can, you can j- tell everybody on Facebook that you and God have a great relationship. And you can post pictures of your stack of Bibles and your little chai latte and the sun rising in the distance and your little notepad with your little notes written down and your little favorite verses. And you can say everything that you want to say. But if you are not obedient to the word of God, if you are not submitted to the word of God as the final authority in your life, the reality is that whatever relationship you claim to have with God does not exist. Now, a Christian can get backwards with God. A Christian can get backslid. A Christian can get out of sorts with God. And that's where chastening comes in. And boy, we're running some rabbits today. We'll see how far we get. Lord, help me today to stay on task. Chastening comes in in Hebrews that God chastens every son of his whom he loves. Now, chastening just means a good old-fashioned butt whooping. It means getting your hide tanned, getting taken to the woodshed. It means getting a switch applied to your buttocks. That's the basic idea of chastening. And old Dr. Spock and the rest of the world says that that's no good and that it psychologically destroys children to chasten them. But God says in his word that he chastens every son of his whom he loves. God says in his word that if that the, that the parents that will not chasten their children hate their children. So whatever this world wants to say about it, they can say whatever they want. They contradict God. They're wrong. God in his word gives clear instruction for chastening and that's a whole nother topic that we're not getting into right now now you can do that and it be wrong and it be abuse and all that kind of thing but if you're doing it biblically it is an expression of holy love if it's done biblically according to the word of God. So don't you go putting words in my mouth about what I'm saying. You go to the Bible and find out what the Bible says about chastening. That's what I'm holding and espousing today. Now, God Almighty will chasten his children whom he loves. Now, here's the difference between chastening and natural consequences. I read about a man that jumped off of a big piece of equipment, this great big digger called Brutus out in Kansas. It's 160 feet high to the tip of the boom of the shovel on that giant excavator. Absolutely huge excavator. And here was a 49-year-old dentist, I think it was 2010, and he decided he was going to parachute off of the boom. It's only a 160-foot drop. That's called base jumping. It's very dangerous, but people do it, and they are able, some do it successfully, some not so successfully. And so this dentist climbed up to the top, of this boom and he got ready to jump off with his parachute and he tripped and he fell and he went splat and I say that with no disrespect to his family I'm sure they grieve what a but what a foolish way to die what what a horrible way to die what a horrible way to die where were we going with that We were talking about chastening and natural consequences. Thank you. If you jump off of a boom 160 feet up in the air and you're not ready and you don't have your parachute ready, you will die. It doesn't matter if you're saved or lost. You will die. That doesn't prove whether you're saved or lost. It just means you fell 160 feet and died. By the way, if you go off a bridge, if you you run into a brick wall going 100 miles an hour in your vehicle, you will die. 
There are, there are things that happen. Natural consequences happen in people's lives. True chastening is based on this old man, new man concept. And this is going to tie into every area of the Christian life. This is going to tie into every area of the Christian life. Chastening is based on your relationship with God, which is the new creature. A relationship with God does not mean getting up and offering oblations to God of your time by opening your Bible and reading some words and getting a fuzzy feeling and drinking your little sweet tea or your chai latte or your coffee or whatever and then going with your little motivational speech and leaving for the day and posting post-it notes of the promises of God all over the place. That's not a relationship with God. Communion with God is the new man, the new creature created in truth righteousness and true holiness speaking to God and God speaking to the new creature through the word of God and the heart and the soul and the spirit of that person being renewed and changed and conformed into the image of God by the word of God and that new man therefore has a new relationship a new is a new creature and has a new relationship with God when a Christian gets backslidden and begins to sin, he's operating in the old man. And as he operates in the old nature, he is cut off to a degree from his fellowship that he had with God because he's operating in his old man and his old man has no fellowship with God. So God brings chastening into that man's life to bring him back into the nearness and of the relationship that once was enjoyed between that man and God. What is it that sets chastening apart from natural consequences? If a man goes out and gets drunk, anybody that gets drunk will, if they get pulled over in this country, driving drunk, they will get a DWI, driving well intoxicated. Anybody, a lost man or a saved man. You don't have to be a saved man to get a DWI. And it doesn't prove that you're getting chastened. If you go out and drive drunk, you will probably get caught eventually. And when you get caught, you will get a ticket and you'll probably go to jail and you might lose your job. And that is all evidence of natural consequences. So what separates a believer and his chastening from an unbeliever and his natural consequences? There's only one thing that can separate chastening from natural consequences. And that is the relationship the new man has with the father. Chastening is brought to bear in the life of a Christian to restore them to fellowship with the Father. If you did not have fellowship with the Father before things happened in your life, before the natural consequences begin to stack up, then you are not experiencing chastening. No matter how bad it gets. I'll give you an example. I knew a man, and we'll just call him Johnny. That was not his name. And Johnny came. I met him one day. I'd gr I had grown up knowing this man over the years and doing different things around him at different times in my life. And this man had never evidenced any true desire for God. He went along with religion. He went along with Christianity. But he never really evidenced a desire for the things of God or a love for God. And anytime he could get away with something, he would always do it. If he thought he could get away with looking at dirty pictures, he would do it. And it didn't really bother him too much as long as he could get away with it. If he could get away with stealing or whatever it was, that he, if he could get away with it, he would do it. 
His moral compass was bound by culture, not by Christ. He was not bound by Christ to the law of love. He was bound by culture to the law of what I can get away with without looking stupid or looking lost or looking like a rebel or disappointing my dad and mom until he got old enough to leave home. And then he started doing whatever he wanted. And whatever he wanted led to drunkenness. It led to sleeping with another woman than his wife. And when he got involved in promiscuity and he got involved in immorality, his his wife left him. And I remember one day, years had gone by and I met him and I said to him, again, his name's not Johnny, but we'll call him Johnny. I said to him, Johnny, um, are you saved? If you died tonight, do you know where you go? Oh yeah, I'd go to heaven. And I said, what is the evidence that you would go to heaven? And he, sa- he said, well, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, evidence. And I started giving him biblical evidence for, his, for salvation. And he didn't have any evidence except finally he perked up and he said, I have evidence of chastening in my life. Everything has gone wrong in my life, so I see God chastening me. And I looked at him and I said, Johnny, if I didn't say Johnny, but I said his name. I said, Johnny, if you, if you have never had a relationship with the Father, if you've never had these other evidences of the new creature, of desire for the Word of God, all these other things that I went over with him, if you do not have the evidence of being born again, then, you're, then what you're calling chastening is nothing more than natural consequences. Anybody that is promiscuous out and runs around outside of their marriage stands a high chance of having their wife leave them. That's called natural consequences. You don't have to be saved to, to lose your family if you're going to act immorally and practice immorality outside and... Um, live in a way of wickedness outside the marriage you don't have to be saved to lose your wife that's not chastening and boy are we on some rabbits today Lord, help us today to stay on task. Help us to talk about the old man and the new man. Help us, Lord God, to cover the scriptural ground that you want us to cover in Jesus' name. And amen. So here in our text, um, Colossians 3, he says, You have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man. That old man and that new man. Let's go to 1 Corinthians to understand this better. 1 Corinthians 15. Go quickly in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So this is the introduction of this discussion of the old man and the new man in 1 Corinthians, which is given to us as the first Adam and the second Adam. The old man being first Adam, the new man being the second Adam. And he's talking about the resurrection. And the resurrection, of course, is the embodiment, the physical changing of our old man into a new man. The resurrection is necessary for a man to enter into the kingdom of God because he says flesh and blood cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. So he tells us here in 1 Corinthians 15 that 
Um, the, it says there in verse 35, but some man will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bear grain. It may chance of wheat or of some other grain, but God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him and to every seed his own body. And then he goes on with the different fleshes, the different bodies, the different glories. He says, it is so, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Did you get that today? The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The second, the last Adam, was made a quickening spirit. He spoke there about a natural body that has raised a spiritual body. Do you remember yesterday we were talking about spiritual truth in the Bible? How that spiritual truth in the Bible is literal truth. Just because it's spiritual doesn't mean that you can make it say whatever you want it to say or mean whatever you want it to mean. Spiritual truth is literally spiritual and it's literally truth, but it is spiritual. Now the natural man cannot receive the things of God. So the unsaved man, the unsaved theologian, the unsaved scholar will take the spiritual things in the word of God and begin to try and make them fit into his natural physical mind. So he will spiritualize things in the Bible. And whenever we say that he spiritualizes them, what we actually mean is that he removes from them all bounds of absolutes. All absolutes he removes from them and makes them relative. We have a lie in our culture that if something is spiritual, it is relative. If something is spiritual, it has no absolutes. If something is spiritual, it's like a cloud of fog that can be manipulated. And so we take and we read the Bible as it deals with spiritual truth, and we look at it like a cloud bank. And you imagine four little kids laying on a grassy slope, staring up at a big, fluffy pile of clouds, and one of them says, I see a dinosaur dinosaur and they go ooh, 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 ooh. no I see a horse and the next one goes oh 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 no it's a doggy it's a doggy I see a doggy right there it's a doggy and the next one goes no it's a kitty cat and then they all smile and hold hands and run down the field of grass where the butterflies fly around them he- their heads and sing we're all right and nobody's wrong and everybody's right today everybody's right and nobody's wrong you see what you want to today And that's the way that we approach the Bible. We think that because it's spiritual, we can see whatever we want in it. And because it's a giant fluffy cloud to us in our natural minds and we can't really grasp it, we say, well, you see what you want to see and you see what you want to see and I'll see what I want to see and we'll all be right because it's spiritual and spiritual is relative and nothing could be further from the truth. Spiritual is literal and it is absolute and it is bound by truth. The word of God says that God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And God is a holy God and God is a just God and God is a God of absolutes. Hallelujah. Feel some preaching coming on on that. This is exactly what I prayed that God would do today, that he would help us to peel off the lid of deception off of this spirituality thing and get down to reality in spirituality. 
spirituality that is not based on the facts of God's word is not spirituality at all. It is mysticism. And get that word down in your head. Spirituality that is not based on the facts of God's word is not spirituality. It is mysticism. What is mysticism? Mysticism is exactly what I just described. Mysticism is this idea of relativity where there are no truths. There are no absolutes. There are no facts. Everybody just believes what they want to believe. If you can't see it because it's spiritual, then that means it's open for anybody interpretation that is mysticism it is not spirituality now most churches exercise mysticism today almost every church that you will go to whenever they say the holy spirit is in our midst they actually mean the holy mystic is in our midst because their so-called holy spirit is not bound to the word of god has nothing to do with the word of god does not operate within the confines of the word of god and therefore their Holy Spirit is not the Holy Spirit. Their Holy Spirit is the unholy mystic. And that is what most people worship today. The unholy mystic. When they say Holy Spirit, they mean the unholy mystic because they have a relative spirit. They have an ephemeral spirit. They have a philosophical spirit, but they do not have a Holy Spirit who is bound by the facts of God's word, who operates within the confines of God's word, who exalts the son of God, who is the living word of God and and therefore they have a mystic being, a spirit being that is neither holy nor the spirit of God. And we can discern that very simply. The Bible says, try the spirits, whether they be of God. We are to try the spirits. There are many spirits that are gone out into the world. And how do we know whether it's the spirit of God or the spirit of the Antichrist or the spirit of this world or the spirit of lust or the spirit of concupiscence or the spirit of immorality? How do we know the difference between the spirits that go out in the world? Any spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. Therefore, any spirit that is not bound to the confines of the facts of the holy word of God is not God. A spirit that will go along with you in your sin to the bar on Friday night, to your boyfriend's house on late early Saturday morning, into the bed of iniquity with you, and back through a day of wickedness and sin and idolatry and witchcraft and variance and emulations and strife and wrath and doubting and evil speaking and heresies and envies, and then he'll go to church with you on Sunday morning, and he'll dance with you to the guitars and the drums and he'll sing Jesus, Jesus, Jesus Will they roll out the fog and he'll be right back in sin with you on Sunday night is an unholy mystic, not the Holy Spirit. Now here we have the first man that is natural and the second man that is spiritual. It says here in 1 Corinthians, thank you Lord for giving us your word. And the truth of your word. We have something we can hold on to. We have something that can anchor us in this ungodly day. I just, I just about could quit right now and just shout and say thank you, Lord, for just opening up the understanding and helping us to get a grip and to discern the spirits. 
for giving us a way to not be carried away by unholy spirits. Thank you, Lord. So he says here, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last, Adam, was made a quickening spirit. So Jesus Christ is here defined in 1 Corinthians 15 as a quickening spirit. Now, I mentioned that we talk about Gnostics a little bit. Gnostics came up in the first, I believe, the first century, if I remember right. And the Gnostics came up with a, with a heresy, a false doctrine. The basic idea, and I don't study all this junk, and I encourage you to not either. You need to know just enough to know it's junk, and then you need to throw it in the trash. Now, whenever my wife yesterday um, got a bunch of eggs from the, the refresh farm eggs, and she put them in a sink to wash them so that she could use them, and she filled a bowl with water, and one of those eggs went down and from the bottom of the pile, came shooting up to the top, floating, and pretty soon green stuff started oozing out the side of that egg. My wife did not crack it to find out what was inside it. She ran with the bowl and flung it up into the woods. She knew it was junk and she threw it away. And that's what you need to do with heresy and false doctrine. You don't need to crack those rotten eggs and pour them out on your griddle and fry them up until your whole house stinks to know it's garbage. You don't need to taste it. As soon as you see it's bad, throw it out. Amen. Hope you're saying amen today. So here, Jesus Christ was made a quickening spirit. The Gnostics would take ideas like this in the Bible, and they would throw out other ideas, other truths. They threw out the virgin birth. They threw out the actual incarnation of Christ. That means in the flesh of Christ. They threw out the body of Jesus Christ. Whereas Hebrews says, sacrifice and offering, thou wouldst not but a body hast thou prepared me. They threw out those kinds of verses, and they said, the flesh is wicked, therefore the flesh is sin therefore Jesus had no flesh and that's a lie they absolutely threw away the faith and they developed a complete cult and their cult has been around ever since then and there's all kinds of variants of it the basic ideas of the tenets of their cult are the underlayment of nearly every other cult that there is you find elements of it in the um, masochism, the self-abasement that the Catholic Church has taught for years, trying to appease God by putting down the flesh, and all kinds of other false religions bring in this, these Gnostic ideas. But their idea was that the flesh is bad, therefore the spirit is holy, therefore Jesus did not have a flesh. Total lie from hell. And then they taught that in order to be holy, you have to punish your flesh. So then they were what they called, if I remember right, ascetics, which means that they would punish their flesh. They would put down their flesh to try to be holy. And they thought that the epitome of holiness was the denial of the flesh. Boy, are we into it thick right now. We need about another four hours. We might just have to keep on teaching on this for, a, for the rest of the week and break it up because there's just too much here. Lord, help us today. This is what we touched on yesterday, that whenever a soulish person recognizes their inability to please God because of the war of the flesh, 
They begin to try to punish the flesh with sensual disciplines, soulish disciplines, the mind, the will, and the emotions, trying to bring their flesh under subjection so that they can be holy. And what they're actually doing is strengthening their flesh because they are disciplining their flesh. When you discipline something, it gets stronger. And whenever you through the flesh do mortify the deeds of the flesh, your flesh gets stronger. This is why all of these self-help things, all these accountability groups, small groups, steps to success do not work. They have limited success for a limited time. But the reality is that what it creates is a bunch of self-righteous Pharisees who made it and a bunch of broken monsters who are lapping up sin with all they've got because they got stronger in their flesh than they ever were and then they blew out. And now their flesh that has been disciplined and has grown in strength and grown in stature and their mind and their will and their emotions have become more powerful than ever And but they have turned themselves over to their sin and been given a reprobate mind and become absolute debauched monsters. That's all this stuff creates. Self-righteous Pharisees and sensual monsters. That's all you'll ever get. The flesh is cannot be remodeled. The flesh cannot be renovated. The flesh cannot be dressed up. So, But here it says that the second Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. Look at verse 47 of 1 Corinthians. The first man is of the earth, earth. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Now, Jesus Christ was made a quickening spirit. The Bible's clear that Jesus Christ is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That Jesus is unique and individual, that he is God in the flesh, and yet he is not God the Father, though he is one with the Father, and therefore called the Father in the Old Testament. And if that's confusing, good, because that doctrine is too big for any human mind. But the Bible clearly teaches all of the above. It says that if any man believe me, he will keep my commandments. If he keeps my commandments, I and my father will come to him and make our abode with him. We will live with him. And he says, I will send you another comforter. And the comforter is the Holy Ghost and he will dwell with you. And he says, abide in me and I in you and ye shall bring forth much fruit. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. I have chosen you and ordained you that you should bring forth much fruit. And the concept that Jesus is in God and God is in Jesus and, and the Spirit is in Jesus and, the, and Jesus is in the Spirit and the Spirit is in the Father and the Father is in the Spirit and these three are one is all through the Bible. It cannot be denied. So here Jesus is referred to in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians as the last Adam and he was made a quickening spirit. That means he was a literal, living, breathing spirit. Nothing weird or mystical about it. You see, the reason we think spiritual things are mystical is because we have dead spirits. That's why it's mystical to us. It's not that spirit isn't real. It's that we're not real. That's the problem. The problem is not that spirit is not literal. The problem is that our spirit is literally dead in trespasses and sins and so we're born with no context no understanding no communion no ability to deal with God on a spiritual level which is why Jesus said ye must be born again 
to enter into the kingdom of God. You must be born again. So Jesus, the last Adam, was made a quickening spirit. That means, a, the quickening means someone who brings to life. The word quickening is to bring to life. And here the last Adam was made a quickening spirit to bring to life that which is dead and has no life in itself. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The second, Adam, the last Adam, was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. And remember in John 3, Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Nicodemus had asked him, can a man enter into his mother's womb and be born when he is old? And he said, you must be born of the water and of the spirit to enter into the kingdom of God. There's the natural birth and there's the spirit birth and you're not getting in without both of them that's just what the bible says do i understand all of that do i understand how that uh, what the implications are for a baby in the womb i don't understand all of that i know god is just and david's little baby went to heaven and we know all of that and i'm not getting into that right now we're not chasing that rabbit right now Maybe someday we'll look into that more. But the Bible's clear. Jesus said you must be born of water and of the Spirit. You must be born of the mother's womb and of the Spirit. You must be born of the flesh and of the Spirit. That was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. And so it is with you. You must be first of all made a living soul. God did not die for the pooches, we said in another Bible time. God did not die for the butterflies. He did not die for the oak trees. Jesus Christ, God Almighty, God in the flesh did not die for the bears and the foxes and the owls and the birds of the air jesus christ died for souls of men living eternal souls of men you must be first of all a living soul to qualify for the kingdom of heaven but that's not good enough You've got to be born of the spirit to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That which is, uh, howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. And afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And as is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. Now this brings us right back to Colossians 3, 9, where it says, Lie not to one another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. The old man is the earthy man. The old man is that which is first, which was natural, which was of the mother's womb. The old man is that which is flesh. And they that are, in, uh, uh, they that are of the flesh cannot enter the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's about to say that right here. So let's just keep reading. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Wow. Praise the Lord. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And he goes on to, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. 
so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory O great O death where is thy sting O grave where is thy victory the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There's so much richness here, so much fullness here. I feel like we're swimming in a deep, deep, deep ocean of God's truth. And I'm just, all I'm doing up here is pointing and saying, hey, did you see that? Hey, did you see that? But there's so much more to see. I hope you'll study it out for yourself and let that ocean of God's word just sweep over your soul and renew your mind every day. So the Bible says here, this corruptible must put on incorruption. So that old man is the corruptible. That old man is death. The strength of death is sin. The sting, or where does it say? The sting of death, it says, is sin. The strength of of sin is the law. So here's the old man. The old man, the sting of the old man is his death. The strength of the, is his sin. The strength of, I'm sorry, the strength of sin is the law. So the old man that is the natural man that is not the spiritual man, he's not been born again by the power of God, that man is subject to the law. That man is under the curse of death. That man cannot do anything good. Hence Romans 7, the good that I would I do not and that which I would not, that do I. I find that a law in my members, he said, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For the law is spiritual, but we are carnal, sold under sin. That carnal man, the old man, the first man, the Adamic man, the man that is born with a sin nature, the man that is flesh and blood, who was once in the image of God, perfect and good according to the word of God himself in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, fell into sin, and through sin death passed upon all men, because all have sinned, as it clearly teaches in Romans chapter sin, or Romans chapter 6, which is the sin chapter. But Romans chapter 6, teaches that Romans chapter 6 teaches that we should not sin even though we're saved when we're born again by the power of God 2nd Corinthians 5 17 says therefore if any man be in Christ he is a new creature old things are passed away behold all things are become new but there's a problem we still have our corrupt body as we studied here in 1st Corinthians 15 He says, I show you a mystery in verse 51. Follow along. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That means there is a change coming. And the apostle Paul here speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. That means God breathed these very words. These are not Paul's words that God blessed. These are God's words that he spoke through Paul. He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So the apostle Paul here is looking for a change. The apostle Paul himself is looking to be changed. He's looking for his corruption to be put off and for incorruption to be put on. The apostle Paul here is battling the corruption of his old man and he calls it, he calls it mortality. He calls it corruption, corruptible. He says in verse 54, so in this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. 
So there is a victory yet to be gained to the Christian. The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who nobody, who calls himself a Christian on any level, who believes the Bible at all, nobody would say that the Apostle Paul was not a man who was not only saved, but baptized with the Holy Ghost, filled with the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit here as he wrote this passage, and yet he says, I'm not done. I'm not finished. There is an incorruption that awaits me. There's an immortality that awaits me. There is a mortal part of me that has to be put off, a corruptible part of me that has to be laid in the grave. There is a part of me that must pass from death to life. There's a part of me that must pass from death to victory. There's a part of me that's going to the grave, but that will be raised again. And the Apostle Paul taught us to look for this part go to 2nd Corinthians 4 and 16 2 Corinthians 4 and 16. Here the Apostle Paul, speaking of his ministry in this earth, he says, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. So Paul taught a duality of natures, a dual nature of the Christian. A dual nature. There's the old nature, the fleshly nature, the Adamic nature of the first Adam that is a corruptible nature, a mortal nature, a dying nature, a nature that had broken fellowship and broken communion with God. But then there is a new creature, as he says in chapter 5, 17, just over the next page in my Bible. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are made, are become new. So the old nature must be laid in the grave. The new, the new creature will never die. This is the basis for all Christian work. This is the basis for all true Christian growth. The new man is created in true righteousness and true holiness according to the book of Titus. The old man is mortal. The old man is temporal. The old man is corrupt. The old man is sinful. But the new man is perfect and pure. I don't know if we're going to get to it today because we get into 1 John and we could go easily have a whole nother message just in 1 John. We'll just see how far the Lord takes us today. Um, Let's go ahead and look at a verse in 1 John and then we'll jump into Galatians. Let's just glance at this real quick. 1 John 3, 9. 1 John 3, 9. The Bible says in 1 John 3, 9, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Lord, help us today to get this. We're going to dive into this right now. And we're going to trust you for the strength and the help to get what we need out of it, Lord, today. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you go and take this verse, you can take this verse a couple of different ways. First of all, it means what it says. The Bible always means what it says, and there's no private interpretation. So how you take this verse doesn't really matter if you don't have it the way the Bible says it. If you're not getting it the sense that the Bible says it in, then you're not getting it. And there's a couple ways 
that you can take this verse and run with it wrong. Probably the most common understanding of this verse um, that people get to whenever they're new Christians and they're reading their Bible is that if I'm truly saved, I will never sin again. Well, there's some truth in that statement, but there's some falsehood in that statement. Therefore, this verse um, would have to be, if that was the understanding of this verse, then there would be a contradiction in the word of God. And there'd be a contradiction all through 1 John. I'm not going to try and teach 1 John today. Um, That's a job for another day, maybe another month or year. We'll see what the Lord wants to do. But um, there would be a contradiction there if this means that a man that is saved never sins again. There'd be an obvious contradiction. And this causes people a lot of trouble. Then without understanding the old man and the new man, you cannot grasp this, that there's a new creature within you that does not sin for the seed of God remaineth in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. That part of you that is born of God is perfect. It's created in true righteousness and true holiness. Now that's that's one way people take it wrong is to say that someone that's truly saved never, never, never sins again. Let's look at another extreme that people go to. And this is the extreme that we would call neo-Gnosticism. I say that for all you heady people out there who are the type of people that would believe in neo-Gnosticism. Some of you don't care, but all you thinkers out there and philosophers who have taken and philosophized, or however you say it, spiritualized away the word of God, and this is for you. Neo-Gnosticism, okay? That means new Gnosticism. Now, the old Gnostics, they said the flesh is wicked, and they went to the extreme of saying, therefore, because the flesh is wicked, Jesus had no flesh, and we must punish our flesh. Well, we Americans, were smarter than those old Gnostics, and we've come up with our new Gnosticism. What is neo-Gnosticism? New Gnosticism teaches, just like the Bible says, the flesh is wicked, and then we draw some new conclusions. To that belief. And we say, therefore, the new birth happens in the inside, and God saves the new man, but my old man will have no reform and no change, and I'm going to go on living in my wicked old man like I never got saved, but my new man is saved inside of me. And so instead of punishing my flesh, I'm going to feed my flesh everything I can feed it because the flesh is wicked and there's no hope for it. These are those libertines in the Bible. You say, oh, I'm saved, but my flesh is wicked. But my flesh isn't going to change because the Bible says that the first man is earthy. The first man is natural. And then they go on and say things like this that I hate to even say. Things that I want to scrub my mouth whenever I say them. I'm going to say them for the sake of instruction and beg God to cleanse my mouth from even having said them. They say, God put the natural desire. I Listen, and if you're a young man that told me this, if you hear this, I say this in absolute love for your soul. And I am not mocking you when I say this, but a young man just told me this not too long ago. He says, God made man with natural affections, natural desires, and he told man be fruitful and multiply. He didn't tell man marry a postmenopausal woman. So therefore, the flesh of man will naturally crave young, fertile women. And therefore, it's God's fault that I have that craving, is the conclusion that he led to. And I love you, young man, if you hear this. I want to tell you, you have bit heresy. You have swallowed it. 
that is neo-gnosticism. That is neo-gnosticism. Taking my flesh and saying my flesh is absolutely wicked, but instead of even having the guts and the backbone to be an ascetic, whenever you go to that extreme and you and you absolutely depart from the faith, instead of having the guts and the backbone to deny yourself and try and come up with some kind of righteousness on your own, you just feed your stinking rotten flesh everything that it desires. And you feed those animal instincts and you blame God for them and try and claim some kind of eternal salvation, even though you just feed your flesh all the time. And to those that hold those beliefs, I tell you today, you have erred from the grace of God. You have fallen from whatever grace you once believed in. You are on your way to hell. You do not understand the word of God. You do not believe the Bible. Now the Bible says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin. Go to Galatians. Boy, how do we even leave John? How do we even leave 1 John? Study 1 John. So much more there. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed at his coming. What God is teaching all through the Bible is that as a saved person, you have a duality of natures. You have two natures once you're saved. Once you've been born again, you have a new nature. Before you're saved, your old man is alive, and you don't have a new man. Your spiritual being is in God's economy dead. It's not dead the way that we say dead, but the way we say dead doesn't matter. The way God says dead is what matters. God is the one that created language. God is the one that created all the languages. He created every tongue. And God's the one that says that what says means what it says. God is the one that gets to define the terms and define the doctrines. Go to Galatians 5. He says, this I say then, walk in the Spirit, verse 16, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So whereas your spirit was dead in trespasses and sins, and your old man was alive, God commands us to a new walk, a walk where you have put off the old man with his deeds, a walk where you reckon yourself to be dead in Christ, with Christ, dead from the rudiments of this world, dead from your sins, dead from your trespasses, dead from your old nature. What does that mean in God's economy? That you never have a desire for sin anymore? No. What it means is cut off from sin. Your dead spirit was cut off from God, separated from God. And what God is calling you to do and to be is to be cut off from your old nature, to be cut off from your old drives, to be cut off from the sins that once so easily beset you. That's what God's calling you to. This whole misunderstanding and failed doctrinal understanding comes from a failed understanding of death. He's not saying that your old nature will not exist. He's saying to cut it off. Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 15 that that old man, that that corruptible will put on incorruptible, that that mortal will put on immortality, that we shall be all changed. And until that happens, your old nature will still function as an old nature. But we're commanded by God to put it off. To be separated from it. The Bible even tells us, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. 
Come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. We're commanded to be separate from sin and separate from professing Christians who live in sin. That's what the Bible says. And that is living and walking in the spirit, reckoning yourself to be dead indeed unto sin. He says in verse 16, this I say, then walk in the spirit. Galatians 5, follow along there. And ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. If you say you are living in the spirit and walking in the spirit and you are fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, you are a flaming liar. Liar, liar, pants on fire till they burn up in the lake of fire. You're going to burn. You say you're walking in the spirit. You say you're a new creature, but you live after the flesh. You walk after the flesh. Ye shall die. Your life is characterized by the old nature and you claim to have the new made nature, but there is no evidence that the wind has ever blown in your life or is blowing today. You're going to burn. He says, now this I say then, is this I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. There is the battle of the old man and the new man. He says, put off, he says, lie not to one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man look what he says about the new man there in Colossians and have the and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him the new man is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him that means the new man looks like Jesus a man that says he's filled with the spirit better look like Jesus he better talk like Jesus walk like Jesus act like Jesus or he is not filled with the spirit of the son of God Jesus Christ the righteous there's no two ways about this you cannot be filled with the spirit and led of the spirit and walking in the spirit and living after the lusts of the flesh it is absolutely a complete impossibility you may be saved and having fallen into sin and struggling to discipline your flesh instead of releasing your hold on your own righteousness and begging God to fill you with the spirit to give you power to live a holy life and to live like Jesus lived. You may be struggling along in your flesh, but you're not filled with the spirit. I don't care what you did. I don't care how many times you spoke in tongues or who said you spoke in tongues. I don't care who laid their hands on you. I don't care who prayed over you and God doesn't either. If you are living in sin, you are not filled with the spirit. You are not walking in the spirit it says here this i say then walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh you say i got baptized with the holy ghost i'm walking in the spirit so i left my bum of a husband to go and remarry divorce him and remarry an evangelist and help him because he needed a wife you are a liar ma'am you are not walking in the spirit you probably were never baptized with the holy ghost you are walking in the unclean mystic not the unholy spirit you've got some other uh, some other spirit walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh you say how do you know somebody's walking in the spirit when they walk like jesus 
That's what it means to walk in the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit means to walk like Jesus. To love like Jesus. To warn like Jesus. He says here, but if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. All of these law keepers out here are trying to discipline their flesh to produce a Christ likeness by the energy and strength of the flesh. And it always ends in train wreck. You will either have success and end as a Pharisee, absolutely far from God, a viper, a hypocrite, making clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within is all manner of uncleanness. Or you will discipline your flesh and discipline your flesh into someday your supercharged super strong flesh will suddenly get a craving for your old sin and you will blow out and wipe out and smear your filthiness and your uncleanness all over the faces of everyone that you tried to lead to heaven God have mercy on us today He says here, now the works of the flesh are manifest. That means absolutely without any doubt, clear and visible and open and able to be seen. If you see this stuff, you are seeing the works of the flesh. That's what God's saying. There's no question. There's no doubt. There's no questionability about it. When you see these things, you are seeing the works of the flesh. He says, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these adultery right there. Jesus said, if you leave your husband for any reason and marry another man, you are committing adultery. And he that marries her that is divorced has committed adultery. Read Mark chapter 10. You go and commit adultery, you are committing the works of the flesh. Fornication, it's right there. Uncleanness, lasciviousness. We studied all of these, many of these terms in detail whenever we studied Um, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Look it up by reference. Study it out. You need to know what God means whenever he names a sin. The works of the flesh are these adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Excuse me. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now contrast this to the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. No law. If you're walking in the spirit against such, there is no law. There is no transgression you can commit. If you walk in the spirit, you are walking so far high, so much higher above the law. It does not apply to you. When you walk in the spirit, there is no law that applies to you because the strength of sin is the law and the sting of sin is death and death comes on the natural man, not on the spiritual man. When you are walking in the spirit, you are under the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We didn't even begin to get into Romans chapter eight. We're Lord willing, we're going to have to study that out tomorrow. He says, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. If you're saved, prove it. Step up by faith and walk in the spirit. Hallelujah. Help us, Lord, to live this in Jesus' name. Amen.